Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is produced in association with the UTS Business School, and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. Australians love to gamble. In fact, the first official racehorse meeting occurred in 1810 at Hyde Park in Sydney. And despite the best efforts of the New South Wales Governor Lachlan Macquarie, there was a lot of drinking and a riot ensued. But while the modern digital sports betting culture makes it much harder to start a brawl than it was in 1810, our love of a punt still lingers. Total gambling losses were $25 billion in Australia between 2017 and 2018, according to the latest figures by the Australian Institute of Family Studies. That's up 5% from the year before. $1.23 billion of those was on sports betting. That's a 16.3% increase from the year before. In today's episode, we'll be discussing whether women's sport should do more to welcome those rivers of gold. Dr Adam Cohen is a lecturer in sports management at the University of Technology, Sydney, whose conversation piece from March of this year entitled Can Gambling Juice Fandom for Women's Sport makes the case that when fans place a bet, it motivates them to watch a sport and root for a team they might otherwise have little interest in. For women's sport with the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup on the horizon, that increased interest and better fan retention is worth debating. And joining Dr Cohen is Margaret Quixley, the campaign director for End Gambling Ads, a campaign run by the Alliance for Gambling Reform, a national advocacy organisation which works to prevent and minimise the harm from gambling. Thank you both for joining us. According to the 2019 Australian Gambling Statistics, total sports betting expenditure in Australia has increased from $1.062 billion to $1.2 billion. That's a 16.3% increase between 2017 and 2018. So it appears it's high time to get on board the gambling gravy train, Dr Cohen. Why would gambling be such an important growth factor for women's sport? Well, specifically for, for women's sport, they they simply just they need to do whatever they can to bring in new audiences, new fans. It's such a crowded space in the sports world here in Australia globally that they're competing against not only other sports, not only male sports, but you know, just think of everything that they're competing with in terms of screens, in terms of social media, in terms of everything that people consume now. It's not enough to just be on television or to just exist, that you need to find these new innovative ways to engage with the fan base and get them motivated to pay attention. Mm. And you talk about motivation a lot in your conversation article, and that's one of the big factors that gambling gives people more of an incentive to watch, more of an incentive to return. Now, it's interesting that you talk about that because it raises some very interesting questions about what is fan involvement. In Australia, we talk about barracking for a particular team. It's generally something that you have a sentimental connection. People do have a connection to their sporting clubs and to individual players in other sports. But how do you think gambling either capitalises upon that sentimentality or uses it for financial gain? Do you think that there's some ethical questions involved there? Yeah, and I'll I'll use my experience. I grew up, you know, in the Boston, U.S. area, and this, I grew up rooting for, born and raised in Boston, diehard Boston, all sp- all four sports: Patriots, Red Sox, Celtics, etc. And and that was my passion. 
But as we're seeing more and more now, and especially with younger folks, is there less tied to specific team, specific laundry, and they're more tied to whether it's the players or whether it's the highlights that they see or just a game they're in the mood to watch. So there's less of that organic fan base that's just going to live and die by your just based on where they were born or based on who their parents rooted for. So where gambling comes into play, and you can use the example of fantasy sports, you can use the example of daily fantasy, is it gives you that rooting interest for something you might not have cared about. When I first moved to Australia, I barely knew anything about AFL, rugby, et cetera. And you know, my colleagues took me to a Roosters game. And no offense to the Roosters fans, but I, I didn't know any of the players. I didn't really care. And the way to give myself that little added interest is, all right, I'll toss, I'll toss a couple bucks on who's going to score first, what the over-under is going to be. And then all of a sudden, I care about the results. I care about a specific player and if he's going to score. And I just have that extra oomph that makes me cheer for the team. And the follow-up steps is, so that person that I'm putting a couple bucks on to score first, all of a sudden, now I know his name, I know his uniform number, and maybe I'm going to root for him or follow him a little more in the future. For women's sports, is that potential where it's maybe a gateway to get you to just recognize that the sport exists and learn the names of the athletes and potentially follow them a little closer. Margaret, if I could get you in on this, should we be at all cautious of that that rush that Dr. Cohen describes. It's important, obviously, for people to want to support individual teams and individual athletes and have a personal connection to that team. But there are obviously some questions when that, that link between the spectator and the competitor is fundamentally financial. It seems that that rush of excitement and adrenaline is not really that much different to what you would get in any other form of gambling. Would you agree with that, Margaret? I think that what we really have to think about is, and thank you, Dr. Cohen, for, for stimulating this discussion today through your through your research. I think that it's a really in, in timely conversation, particularly as we're in the midst of a COVID pandemic and, you know, um, sport globally has been decimated, speaking in the Australian context. I'm an AFL fan. I, I watch the AFL and, and particularly women's sport. And I think that, you know, we were all shocked and, and distraught to see that the women's um, league was cut short this year and it's, you know, really just in its early stages. And I think it's really important time to be having this conversation because there will be a temptation and increasingly there is to increase the incentives or to, to grow the, the sports codes and industries through this increased relationship with gambling. And I think your research, Dr. Cohen, really focuses on a US context. And I think that there is some really fundamental differences between the Australian and US context. And, and one of them being a really around a relate, the relationship between gambling and sport in Australia. And the legality of, of sports wagering has obviously been far longer, um, longstanding in, in the Australian context. And I think that there's actually lessons that we can learn from that, particularly about that relationship between the, the fan team relationship and how that is distorted or or how gambling has fundamentally restructured that relationship in many ways in Australia and as you were as you were alluding to Max earlier fans or or spectators engaging or or barracking for their team but but rather for the outcome of an individual or, or in some cases not even their team. And I think that begs the question around what is actually the role of, of sport in society? Is it purely an economic 
pursuit. Yes, it is for for entertainment and you know, spectatorship. But I think, again, and maybe this is more of an, an Australian lens to place to overlay in the argument. But I think we do have to really think about what's the value of sport in society. And of course, it has it has entertainment and health promotion values. We look up to sports stars as role models, particularly children. We use it to grow um, grassroots engagement and to promote healthy relationships. But at, at its core, it, for me, it's really about the values that we that we see and practice in sport is, is fairness and sportsmanship and teamwork. And those are the values that we want to teach children through sport. And in many ways, gambling is the antithesis of those values. I think that, as you kind of pointed to, Max, gambling, gambling draws us into a relate, an individualist relationship with sport, a purely an economic relationship. The other point that I would make really is, I guess I would query or, or quander the kind of the the need to incentivize viewership or particularly viewership of women's sport through using gambling as a means to do that rather than appealing to the intrinsic values of women's sport. And I, I, I accept that it is a crowded market and that, you know, we need to look for new ways to grow the game, but at what cost? Mm, and we'll discuss the economic consequences in a second, but I'd just like to linger on the social consequences for a moment. Now, Margaret, research by the Alliance for Gambling Reform has shown three in four kids think gambling is a normal part of sport in Australia. So it's interesting to consider the generational impact gambling has had upon sport and also the way that we view sport, which has always been one of those great vehicles to express those commonly cited Australian values of mateship, hard work, fair play, etc. But as we've also mentioned, uh, a punt can be ranked amongst those Australian larrikin traits that we all talk about. Have we just maybe accepted the fact that gambling is a part of sport. But I think that we need to disentangle the role that it has with, you know, having markets available for those who want to participate in them from the pr- promotion and the, in- and the link between our sporting heroes and the gambling industry. I think that, you know, much like tobacco, it is it is an industry that's that's regulated and, of course, it, it needs to be illegal to, to prevent it from going underground and into, into black markets. So no one's suggesting that the gambling should be made illegal. I, I think that, though, we need to kind of decouple this assumption that um, in order for gambling to be legal and for people to to have a punt, as you say, if they if they so choose, from the you know the promotion and, and marketing and advertising of gambling, which is essentially what we're advocating for, if we're going to use gambling as a way to grow the game, because th- that growth is linked to the growth in markets and explicitly through sponsorship and promotion, advertising, but also things like pr- um, product licensing fees and broadcast rights. That is that's essentially what we're talking about. I think we do need to be explicit when we're when we're when we're talking about what role gambling will play because essentially it means that we're all going to be exposed to more gambling advertising it's not just about increasing the markets that um, are available because in, in the case of women's sport the markets are already available on on think on sports particularly like netball and women's afl um, but it's really about saying how do we capitalize on those markets and that's about growing the viewership and and essentially what we're you know we, we do need to have a question and do a bit of soul searching around what that means, particularly for children, as you say, we you know since the kind of floodgates opened in 2008, and um, and you know the explosion of both mobile technologies and advertising, you know we've seen a generation of children grow up where the, the the link between gambling and sport is synonymous in their minds, and you know we've got sports heroes like Easton Wood coming out and talking about how that's 
they've they've paused and reflect on their role um, in an industry that essentially is is so closely linked with gambling that children are repeating the odds to the, the to players before they've even fully understood the rules of the game. So this is fundamentally changing the way that children actually watch and play and and enjoy sport. And I think that is a question for parents and society at large. What role do we want sport to have? And and indeed, is, at what cost are we prepared to grow the game? In the academia, where do you draw that line? In terms yeah. of when you're conducting a study, an academic paper into gambling, where do you draw that line between problem gambling and casual entertainment gambling, if there is one to be drawn um, in the research? Yeah, there definitely, I mean, there are simple, you know, addiction uh, metrics that you can, you know, how committed, you know, can people not watch a sporting event without having money on it? Can people, are people betting money that they can't afford? You know, are they spending their paychecks? Are they taking out, you know, uh, borrowing money from different people versus are people doing it for fun? Are doing, are people doing it to enjoy the game a little more? Are people doing it because it gives them a connection or helps them build relationships with their friends? Uh, me and my friends from overseas, we, we've been doing our fantasy gridiron league for 18 years. And, you know, it's not life changing money. It's barely anything, but it's been this really great tool for us, for me to keep in touch with them. And we have our whole texting thread and we watch the games together. So two very different ways. The Australian government released some some research late last year that found that there's over a million active users on of online wagering in Australia. We don't know the exact figure because the sports wagering firms don't release that, but we know there's at least a million. And from that research, we also learned that 52% of people who participate in online gambling are at, are already experiencing harm or at risk of experiencing harm. So that's what Dr. Cohen was alluding to. It's not just around financial um, social impacts, but we're talking about the social impacts in terms of things like the exacerbation of other comorbidities at its extreme. It's things like um, mental ill health and homelessness and other forms of addiction, domestic violence, for example. But another piece of research also indicates that, you know, a lot of these discussions are really focused at the most acute forms of gambling behaviour. So when we talk about um, gambling addiction, that's obviously um, the extreme form. But in fact, the majority of harm is actually experienced at the lower and middle ends of that bell curve. So rather than thinking about, you know, the top, you know, 5% perhaps of people who are experiencing extreme forms of addiction, harm actually occurs a lot earlier in the spectrum than often is assumed. So I just wanted to bring that into the, into the debate as well. And it's interesting that we talk about that distinction between the two cultures. Now, Australia's gambling losses per adult are more than double those in the United States. Dr. Cohen, I'd like to linger on this for a moment. I think it's interesting. What have been some of your biggest observations on the differences in gambling culture between the United States and Australia? Yeah, I remember I had a moment in one of my classes where I was just simply curious about students that were doing it. And I did an anonymous survey and the results popped up. And I just said, you know, how many of you have a gambling app on your phone right now? And it was like 82% in a class of 55 and both males and females. And I, and I was really shocked at that and how commonplace it was. Where in the U.S., you, you do have to work for it. And, you know, new laws have made it easier uh, depending on the state you live in. If I did a similar survey like that, asking students in a class back when I worked in the States, it probably would have been closer to 10 to 20% were active in it. So yeah, I really was shocked at how normalized it was in the culture here in terms of um, just the people I've interacted with, whether it's colleagues or students or 
the general public. We're on the topic of women's sport, the 2023 Women's World Cup coming up in Australia. That's the largest international women's sporting event on the foreseeable horizon. It brings to mind, obviously, a question that I think a lot of people would be asking. In Australia, 54% of gamblers are male. Is there a a chance possibly that there's a sleeping giant of a market in young women who may be just as interested in wagering on a sport they have more of an investment in. I definitely think it's an untapped market and just and I mentioned it in my article is it's simply a lot, a lot of it's a lack of awareness when it comes to gambling on women's sport. So if I look at the men's world cup, I could find 8 million articles about predicting pool results or who's going to win or who's going to get the golden ball. I simply can't find those articles for the Women's World Cup. And the more of that information that comes out, the more people that consume it and the more people become aware of the opportunities to bet on it. I think the demographic that's going to consume those articles are, you're going to have a lot of young women that are really passionate about the game coming and they're going to want to just consume as much information as possible. And if those types of articles kind of seep into their orbit, whether it's on social media or people they follow, or there's just stakeholders in that space, then they're just going to be more aware of the opportunities and growth can ensue in that sense. And Margaret, I can imagine that at the moment, women's sport and this entire market, it can be seen in many ways as a bit of a blank slate in terms of introducing gambling to the equation. And I can imagine from your perspective, it's interesting to look in the position that the sport is now, uh, where it's sort of in the infancy of its gambling culture. Do you worry that there's such an incentive to cash in on this that many codes may have no option? Well, I, I do worry about that. I think that I would suggest that it's a really great moment right now to be having this conversation because I'm not sure that we actually did when sports gambling really took off in Australia particularly and we saw you know a rising number of partnerships and sponsorship deals and broadcast agreements etc those weren't those weren't an explicit public conversation we didn't have you know the same social discourse around what role do we actually want gambling to have in men's sport and I think we are at that moment right now where we can reflect on what we've learned and um, talk about what role we actually want it to play in women's sport. I think that, you know, we've seen many women's codes and women athletes, in, in fact, stand up increasingly. And, you know, the case of Netball Australia and, and other leagues, I believe even Baseball Australia set up, stood up and, and quite actively taken a position to not endorse and support gambling because it actually, they, they see it as, as the antithesis to the values that they hold as an organisation. And increasingly, organisations like the AFL and Cricket Australia are coming under increasing scrutiny for, the, for their association with gambling companies because they are moral leaders in Australia, they, they take, you know, social positions on things like, you know, violence against women and racism. And this is something where they've really been absent in this community discussion. And it's obviously because they have a direct conflict of interest. I think that it is, there is a bit of a false dichotomy that I really just want to dispel around, you know, this idea that women, shouldn't women also benefit and profit from gambling? I think that actually we can reflect and on the, again, on that meta question of what role do we want gambling to play in sport generally? And, and just because that there is rivers of gold really off the back of immense financial harm, you know, the most amount of profit is coming from a small number of people who are losing. We've just heard last week, you know, a, a man lost $8 million on three, you know, three 
sports betting companies who actively targeted him because they knew that he was gambling dangerously and harming himself. So I think that there is, you know, there is a really distinct difference between Dr. Cohen's framing of his engagement with his friends, you know, in terms of small amounts to really incentivize and and increase his engagement and his enjoyment of the game versus this actual active promoting and and of gambling throughout the game and and framing a lot of that discourse and the way we talk about the game through odds and markets. And I think that we do need to be thinking about there is an inherent conflict of interest, of course, between sports gambling firms and those who sign on corporate arrangements with, with industries or sporting codes like the AFL, for example, because I think when we're talking about such huge sums of money and indeed in the COVID context, there's only a few organizations or companies that can actually afford to to pay, to continue to pay the same ad fees as what gambling companies have. It was one of the few still actively saw a lot of gambling ads on television and online. And I would also add that, you know, the research tells us that children, again, are the most disproportionately affected by that advertising. They They are viewing it at higher rates than adults, certainly online. And, you know, the indiscriminate glastering wall-to-wall advertising, whether professional sport is on television or not, I think that that's, there is a, certainly a conflict of interest when, when sports industries are signing marketing and sponsorship deals and then broadcast rights deals are being negotiated off the back of the value of that advertising dollar. We're setting ourselves up into, to become, you know, there's, there's a huge power um, interest and power dynamic between who actually, I mean, the AFL particularly, who is a not-for-profit organisation that exists to to, um, support and um, run a a league for the enjoyment and and engagement of its members, who then signing on to five, eight million, $10 million um, per annum sports gambling advertising deals, well, then how are they supposed to actually make decisions in the interest of of, of fans? They're inherently conflicted when when there's such a huge marketing dollar in discussion. And Dr. Cohen, you mentioned in your conversation article this concept of fan retention, how having a financial investment in a game or a player allows people to return, watch again, have an investment in them. In Australia, at least, the statistics are a little bit concerning. So in the same Institute of Family Studies paper from 2019 that I've cited earlier in the show, 41% of all regular sports bettors, that's 234,000 adults, experienced one or more gambling problems. Could some people perceive the term fan retention as just being another way of saying chasing your losses. When I'm talking about retention, it's more the way I'm looking at it is getting you to care more about the sport and the players and the actions on the field. And in a perfect world, the fantasy league or the small bet is kind of that gateway where it's like, oh, the sport's kind of, I, I actually enjoyed watching the sport. I actually know who Sam Kerr is now. I actually you know, I know that the AFLW exists. Maybe I'll check it out in the future. You know, when it comes to addiction, obviously that's the opposite path of what I would hope for in terms of retention is I lost 20 bucks on the first time I gave it a go. Now I'm going to bet 40 bucks on AFLW the next time I give it a go. That's, that's certainly definitely the least optimal result that can happen. So when, you know, when I'm focusing on retention, it's more as a consumer and just simply having awareness. I mentioned in my article about about golf, and that's been one of the fastest rising uh, gambling and fantasy sports in the whole world. And research has shown that people that first tried started doing fantasy just because they wanted to do it or first started doing betting, they increased their viewership, their ratings went up, 
people started watching, people started following more of the players on social media and, you know, on Instagram and Twitter. And there was just a huge spike in interest. Uh, If you look at Google Trends, the Google Trends went up on so many different players um, just because millennials were becoming more aware of the sport and its existence and how fun it was to watch. So that was kind of an, an example of retaining fans without you know, kids going broke over it. But again, you know, I, I take all the points that Margaret are saying and the, the st- study you are citing where, you know, there are these concerns about addiction. Are we really discussing what that fundamental emotional connection is to sport in terms of we accept that in the past we may have rose-tinted glasses about the way sport used to be. Now, obviously, that has changed. We've spoken over the last half hour about that intergenerational change. I think it's concerning that young people have become so attracted to gambling because ultimately the modern gambling system is designed exactly for them. It's incredibly tech savvy the the humor and the styling and the way that it's presented is is very youthful and and contemporary now it's shifting the goalposts if if i may use the pun in the way that young australians perceive sport and certainly the way that my generation and generations after mine will convey the messages of sport to our children so just to summarize is the emotional connection we have to sport something that should never be tarnished and should never be touched Or do you think the relationship we have to sport is something that just changes with the times? Plain and simple, sport is evolving. In an ideal world, when it comes to the Women's World Cup that's coming up, I'd love if every fan was organically driven by grassroots sports and community initiatives and awareness campaigns and everything like that. And I I think all that stuff should happen. And I think all that stuff will be very useful to building the fan base. But the reality is, is uh, young consumers just consume things in a much different manner than our parents used to. It's undeniable that our relationship with, with sport is changing the way that the role that sport plays in society is changing, but that doesn't mean that we should be exploiting those changes or those propensities. I think that as a society, we should be having these deep discussions um, and certainly as leaders and as governments, we have a responsibility to actually set the tone and to talk about what role does gambling play in sport. It's difficult to actually have a discussion limited to just growing the game because to, in my mind, it's growing to what end? What we're not saying is it's growing for, for economic output, but that's not at all considering the economic cost of gambling in other parts of society that is that is not explicitly linked. But we know, again, from research in, in Victoria that costs total 2014-2015, that was $7 billion in social costs associated with gambling harm. So I think that we do need to couch this conversation in a broader conversation around what role do we want to play in our society? What, what are the social and other economic costs? And what do we as governments and thought leaders, what role do we want to play in actually actually shepherding and leading the next generation to have a more healthy relationship with sport that's not necessarily dependent upon gambling to seek enjoyment. I think that that would be a real shame if we had done that path. Gambling has undoubtedly shifted the goalposts of Australian sporting culture. And despite the clear ethical questions at play, Dr. Cohen's research has shown that when money's on the line, passes, tackles, kicks and strokes seem to matter a whole lot more. Sports may benefit, women's leagues may get larger, but for the individual, the punter, it's important to remember the house always wins. 
Thank you to our guests, Dr. Adam Cohen and Margaret Quixley. Make sure to catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to spread the good word of the show with your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman. Thanks for listening.